Well, as we continue our study of Ephesians for our evening services, we come this evening to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, and we'll read tonight verses 1 through 9. As the Apostle Paul wrote these words under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know that this therefore is the word of the living God, it's therefore without error, and so we must attend with reverence to the reading and the proclamation of God's holy word and be in obedience to it. So we read now tonight Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 through 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. This ends the reading of God's holy word for us this evening. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in the sight of God. As Paul continues unpacking what our response to God's grace ought to be, as he, uh, as he explained that grace to us in the early chapters, and then he shows us what is our response of gratitude, how do we obey God, how do we live as Christians in the rest of the letter. Particularly, he has noted that that response involves the unity of the church, uh, who are, which is made up of members with various gifts. And how do we manifest that? As he gives examples of how we can walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, and as he shows ways in which submitting to one another is worked out in the different relationships in the church and the world. Last time we saw uh, those relationship, the relationship of marriage, a husband to a wife and wife to a husband, and how that uh, giving up of oneself uh, manifests in different ways in those different roles. He comes to the topic here of obeying authorities. Children to parents, and we might note it's here slaves to masters, and then also with instructions for the parents and for the masters. But we also see that this is generally uh, a way of looking at how we relate to authority figures. Uh, Paul says in verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And notice again, as with the wives submitting to their husbands, the obedience is to be in the Lord. And that's a double-edged sword, so to speak. Number one is that it means that as we submit uh, to the uh, proper authorities, in this case children to parents, 
we do so recognizing that this is a way of showing our submission to Christ, but also the other side of it is that it means that we are submitting to Christ above all, and so no command to disobey God, even from a lawful authority, is still an unlawful command. So no command to disobey God is to be followed. Uh, Children are to honor their parents, and of course, when still especially under their roof, to be obedient. But that authority of parents does not extend to to having the authority for them to disobey God. In fact, we can uh, see that to honor one's parents, uh, or maybe let me step back and put it another way, uh, to obey an unlawful command from a parent or from a from any other authority figure uh, is to dishonor that authority because that authority comes from God originally, and so God must all uh, must above all be obeyed. So the authority of parents over children is given by God. This is His order of things. Now, that's why Paul says, "For this is right." That word "right" there. Uh, communicates not just moral rightness, but a right-orderedness. This is the way things are supposed to be. But this obedience must be in the Lord. So when Christian children willingly submit to parents as they would to Jesus, they bring honor to God who created the family structure. But of course, again, that doesn't extend to anything that's unlawful. Now in the following verses, Paul will quote the fifth commandment. So we might ask, why would he say obey in verse 1 rather than honor, which is what the commandment actually says? And John Calvin points out, it is because obedience is the evidence of that honor which children owe to parents. It is likewise more difficult, for the human mind recoils from the idea of subjection, and with difficulty allows itself to be placed under the control of another. It's very hard for us to submit. We don't like it. This is why, as we saw in our Sabbath school class today, that there were some, Voss pointed out, objected to the notion of God's monarchy because they like democracy better, as if somehow we should be on an equal plane with God and that he gets a vote and we get a vote. Well, no, that's not how it works. He made us. He gets to dictate how things are going to be. So when children obey their parents, they're giving evidence that they actually honor their fathers and their mothers. Because not only is God's kingdom not a democracy, neither are our households. And children, particularly young children, uh, don't have an equal say in things. Now, of course, it's part of responsible parenthood to help your children learn how to govern themselves by having a say in things to some extent as they get older, particularly a say in their own choices, uh, what they'll do with their own life. But we don't uh, run our households, or let me put it this way, if anyone tries to run their household as a democracy, including uh, giving the young children an equal vote with the parents, they will have chaos in their household. When children obey their parents, they are giving evidence of the honor that God has called them to, has commanded of them for their parents. So Paul actually quotes the fifth commandment here, uh, breaks it up a little bit in verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother, he says, which is the first commandment with promise. Then he goes back to quoting the commandment, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. 
uh, we can note that uh, that the word there in the original Hebrew, uh, Exodus 20, uh, is the word Eretz for earth there. It can also be translated as land. While obedience is the fruit of honor, it's possible to obey outwardly without truly honoring the father or the mother. So while verse 1 speaks of behavior, the outward behavior of obedience Verses 2 and 3 speak of the attitude of the heart. And with the intent of building up hope and joy and to spur us to righteousness, God gave that promise that obedience to parents leads to certain blessings. Perhaps uh, he gave that as the first, uh, the first commandment with an, uh, an open promise attached to it. Because God, of course, knows our hearts and knows how hard it is for us to submit. It's not as hard for us, it's hard enough for mankind to submit to God, even when we have changed hearts. But it's much harder, as we noted last week in regard to marriage, to submit ourselves to someone who we know is flawed. And so particularly when we start to get older, uh, hit our teen years, you know, as we, we start to notice, oh, our Parents make mistakes. And that comes coincidentally about the same time that we begin to think that we know everything. And so then all of a sudden our parents are the stupidest people in the world and they can't possibly know how to govern us. So why should I obey them? Well, because you're supposed to honor them. And as you'll find out later on, they're not quite as dumb as you thought they were. And so with that intent of building up that hope and joy, of, of encouraging this righteous behavior, God gives this promise that as you learn to obey your parents, as you learn to keep things in the society that well-ordered, he says that it may go well with you, and you may live long in the land, literally. As it appears in Exodus 20, it says that, you, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So remember, that was spoken in the days of Moses at the beginning of the Exodus period and the wilderness journey, and then one more time uh, restated at the end when uh, Moses is retelling everything, that, recounting everything that had happened to them earlier on, really a generation earlier, 40 years earlier. And so ancient Israel was preparing to enter the promised land and they had this promise given to them that honor of parents would yield a stability for them in that land God was giving them. And that has applications for us today. The family is the first structure of human government. If we think about it, as we find in Scripture and reiterated by the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, God made of one blood, all of the nations of the earth. We can make a tangent from that or take a little sidestep here and note this is one of the reasons that critical race theory and all of these things that are so objectionable in our own day are so objectionable. Why is that so objectionable? Because it seeks to divide us by superficial things. And it refuses to note that God has made us all in his image. With one blood, he made all of the nations of the earth and gave them their uh, time in history, the, the span of the lands that they would 
live in in the time span that that would be allowed. Ancient Israel had this promise, and so do we in another sense. The family is the first structure of human government. In fact, we are all one large family by blood. God created Adam and Eve as a family to rule over his creation. When mankind was fruitful and multiplied, proper government would have simply been an extension of that family authority structure. Adam was still the head of the family for 900 years as he lived over 900 years. Solid family structures with children under parents is the basis for a stable society. This again is why we see uh, the cultural Marxists of our day seeking to undermine the family because then there has to be an outside structure from government, from top down, taking over those roles and they take more authority in our lives. Now as with marriage, the relationship and roles of parents and children, though differing, consist of a two-way street. God does not enjoin obedience and honor to parents and leave no commandment for the parents in how they are to raise their children. Deuteronomy 6.7 commands parents to teach God's commandments diligently to your children. When you get up in the morning, teach God's ways to your children. When you walk along the way, teach God's ways to your children. When you lie down at night, teach God's ways to your children. And here Paul says, starting in verse 4, And you fathers... Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Notice before admonishing discipline and instruction, the training and admonition there, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Why would he need to say that? Well, of course, it's very easy for us in our sinful state to uh, overextend uh, our authority that God has given us and to use it in an ungodly way. Similarly, in Colossians 3.21, he writes, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. We don't want to be provoking our children to wrath by the way that we're trying to train them. The, it's not just that we train them, but how we train them. And as we train them, we want to make sure that we're not doing it in an autocratic way, in a way that that brings anger from them or discouragement to them. First, we might note that while verses 1 through 3 spoke of obedience to parents and honoring father and mother, here, particularly, he he addresses fathers, and not both fathers and mothers, though we could see that, that mothers can learn from this as well, but particularly fathers. If we go back to the previous verses of 22 through 35, 22 through 33, we could see why. If the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, and parents are to be honored and obeyed, then God commands them to teach their children in the ways of godliness. As the head of the household, the father is going to be especially responsible and especially held accountable by God to see that his children are raised in a disciplined fashion, knowing the things of the Lord. 
But in our sin and our short-sightedness, it's easy to corrupt that discipline into a demand for blind obedience. Fathers, and I, now I can get to say we as I preach this, we're not drill sergeants. We are not generals. We are to be servant leaders in our household. We are what Christ is to the church in our households. So instead of nurturing children in mind and spirit, it's all too easy to crush them, even as we're trying to direct them in the right way. And John Calvin writes of that, kind and liberal treatment has rather a tendency to cherish reverence for their parents and to increase the cheerfulness and activity of their obedience, while a harsh and unkind manner raises them to obstinacy and destroys the natural affections. It's all too easy to to do the right thing on paper, so to speak, and be doing it in a manner that would actually encourage the children to be obstinate and to lose their natural affection for their parents. Calvin's view is backed up by the word translated bring up here because it communicates the idea of a gentle, forbearing nurture, uh, not a stringent upbringing. One of the great tragedies, I think, in our culture, and I know this is uh, from the evil one on both ends, that is the the tendency for people to say that they had a quote-unquote religious upbringing and that to equate with a stringent upbringing that allowed no freedom of expression on the part of the children. Certainly we don't want to let our children engage in every sin that's out there. And I think another extreme is for people just to be libertines with their children or to do what we sometimes hear of some uh, stricter uh, communities where they have a, a time, well, for example, a lot of Amish communities have something they call Rumspringa in German, where it just means jumping around, um, where you just kind of let the kids go out and before they join the church they can live as worldly as they want to and see what it's like, and then if they still want to join the church, they must be committed. I don't think that's the biblical way of doing it either. William Hendrickson lists six ways that fathers, and we could say mothers too, might provoke their children. He mentions overprotection, never allowing the child to build up confidence, keeping them fearful to take natural risks. Another way, the second thing is favoritism. We saw this in our study of Genesis, didn't we? Genesis 25 and onward show the terrible results in a family when parents favor one child over another, where we have Jacob preferring Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob more. Jacob favored Joseph in such a way that discouraged his other sons and caused the brothers to hate Joseph. A third thing we can see is discouragement that Hendrickson lists here. When the child is made to feel sort of like nothing he or she does is ever going to meet the parent's standard. No effort a boy makes will be enough to please his father. Right? That, that kind of thing is incredibly discouraging. Another, a fourth thing that Hendrickson lists here is failure to recognize or allow the child to have his or her own ideas, interests, or goals. So where we try to 
make the child either into ourselves or what we wish we were. Number five, he says, neglect. David's failure to deal with his son Amnon's sins helped lead Absalom to murder his brother. And then David's neglect with Absalom in dealing with that tragic situation contributed to Absalom actually rebelling and for a time overthrowing his father. Neglect could be a terrible way of discouraging children. And number six, then, cruelty. This is whether through bitter words or physical abuse, cruelty fails in what God has commanded us to do with our children. All of these things create resentment and bitterness in children toward their parents. That would be all included in what Paul says here, uses the word here, provoke. Do not provoke your children. If your children are rebellious, of course, sin is there. It's not going to be, uh, it's not as if we raise sinless children. And if we do everything right, they won't be sinners. No, they're still sinners. Nor can we save children by raising them right. Only Christ can save them. But when we do things poorly, when we provoke our children, we make things worse. They create resentment, bitterness, and the children toward their parents. So we've contributed to their sinfulness if we do that. The headship of the father in the household is not to be arbitrary or autocratic or distant or cold, nor spiteful or cruel, but it should reflect the headship of Christ who is our head, but gave up himself for us. And of course we owe him love and obedience for that. But when children see that their parents, are, and particularly their fathers, are laying down their lives for them, they will see that it's natural for them then to obey and love. So Paul says children are to be nurtured in the, the training and the admonition of the Lord. The word translated there as training is paideia, uh, which is from the, the word for little child. So it refers to a gentle leading of a child as opposed to the rigid discipline of the military, for example. Because Paul loves military image, imagery. We see that. We'll see it later on in this chapter. We'll see military imagery. But he doesn't use military language here for the discipline that fathers are to have toward their children. But rather, it's the gentle leading of a little child. Shaping the child through both yes, just correction and punishments when necessary and righteous encouragement. That has to be done alongside admonition, instruction in God's word. Uh, the word here is nutheus, or nuthasia, excuse me, uh, the, the shaping and filling of the mind. Getting the child so familiar with God's word and concepts from it that he or she tends to have a biblical worldview rather than that of the culture and the world around us. I think uh, taking this uh, responsibility seriously is one of the great reasons that we see uh, in particularly freer countries like our own, we're free-ish. We're not as free as we used to be, I don't think. But it's the reason why we've seen a rise in homeschooling and Christian schooling. Because parents have realized that it's getting harder and harder 
to shape the child's mind correctly according to God's word, to help them to see the world through the lens of Scripture, through the public schools. So that is a great responsibility of parents, to get the child so familiar with God's words, with concepts from it, that that child tends to have a biblical worldview. After dealing with the parent-child relationship, Paul turns to the slave-master relationship, another authority relationship. Slavery was common in the Roman Empire, and slaves had no real legal rights. They, sadly, uh, had more rights in that situation even than slaves did in American history. The, the chattel slavery of American history is even worse than what we see in the Roman Empire. Uh, it's not, but this is not the kind of slavery that was countenanced in the Old Testament. When God allowed for slavery in the Old Testament, it was usually a debt slavery. Uh, other slavery uh, was for crime, often for the crime of making war against God's people, and so people captured in war could be enslaved, and that sort of thing. But ordinarily, otherwise, it was more of what we would call indentured servitude, uh, where people were in debt, and so if I go in debt and I can't pay off the debt, I'll either go to the, to the creditor himself, or I will go to someone else who will pay off my debt, and for that, I will labor for him for seven years. Six full years, and in the seventh year, I would be freed, unless I voluntarily stayed, in which case he would pierce my ear uh, with an awl against the doorpost of his house. But slavery in the Roman Empire was more by compulsion. It was common, and those slaves had, by the time of Paul, lost a lot of the legal rights that they used to have. They still had some rights. They had virtually no rights. Paul does not speak against the institution in his letters, uh, though he does command a very different view of the master-slave relationship that was normal in his day, uh, both from the master and from the slave. And uh, as many people have noted when we read letters like Philemon, uh, Paul made it practically impossible for Christians to continue to be the owners of slaves because it made it harder and harder because we couldn't be the kinds of masters that we ought to be and still be compelling people uh, to remain in servitude. These principles work equally well in an employer-employee relationship that we see as Paul sets forth here. So we do have direct application in our day, even though institutionalized slavery is gone, at least it's illegal in our culture. Um, sadly, we do see a lot, a, a huge part of the problem of our open southern border is the tendency to human trafficking and uh, virtual slavery. But in in the world, it's sad to say that uh, statistics have borne out that particularly in the Muslim world, uh, there are more slaves alive today than there ever were in the days of the transatlantic slave trade, which is a great wickedness in the world today. What Paul writes here of this relationship, first he speaks of the slaves, the bondservants, verses 5 and 6. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, so your earthly masters, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. It's kind of like how we noted before that, that the way we treat those in government 
uh, should uh, show that Christians make good citizens. Here Paul is saying, uh, you shouldn't, uh, your behavior should not make your, uh, your masters think that it's a bad thing to let their servants go to church. They should see that Christians make good servants. The obedience, once again, is to Christ above all. Doing the will of God from the heart. Commands to sin, of course, have to be disobeyed. But otherwise, employers and masters should be obeyed sincerely, not grudgingly, uh, only doing what looks right, but willingly and cheerfully. You know, we're all familiar with the kind of person who you know, slacks off at work, but then tries to look busy when the boss comes around. Right? Um, uh, slaves were notorious for that in Paul's day because they had no recourse to get back at the people who had compelled them into servitude. And so they would do the job half-heartedly uh, as sort of a way of getting back at their masters. Then, uh, of course, they had no legal recourse to defend themselves from uh, harsh masters. It's sort of like the waitress who you know, smilingly serves the difficult customer and then sneezes in his coffee when uh, he's not looking. Um, Christians, whether they're servants, slaves, or employees, are not to be like that. Rather, they are to be, as verses 7 and 8 say, uh, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So again, we know, you know, even if I don't get any reward for faithful service from this earthly master or this earthly employer, I have a heavenly master who notes this. So whether we're slave or free, service to those in authority over us is not to be done as uh, only if we like them, but as to the Lord and not to men. It's a lot easier to serve a perfect master, and Jesus is a perfect master. So regardless of what the master is like, we are to obey lawful commands. We cease to be slaves to men, then, in spirit, when we serve the Lord. Is it hard you know, to write that report, to, to haul those bricks, uh, to do whatever our employer has demanded of us? What if it were Jesus asking you to do it? To the masters, or to the employers, Paul says... And you masters do the same thing to them. What the same thing that I've asked of them, the submission to the Lord, I'm asking of you or commanding of you. You masters do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. In other words, he's not going to say someday, oh well, you had the right to mistreat your slaves or your employees uh, because they were under your authority. No, he'd say, well, what if I treated you like that? The master, the employer, is to be encouraging, leading, and commanding as Christ leads and commands. Not threatening, but with servant leadership. Jesus does not lead the flock with threats, but with loving care. Certainly he will pour out his wrath on unbelievers, but he lovingly leads his people into righteousness for his name's sake. An overall positive approach rather than a negative one is what is godly. Masters are to remember that they too are slaves of their master, Jesus Christ. So masters and slaves, employers and employees all have the same master if they are Christians. In all this, we see that the authority structures in our lives are from God. 
All authority has its source in God and belongs rightfully to Jesus Christ. So by honoring the appropriate authorities, not people who usurp authority, but appropriate authority in our lives, by obeying them, except when they command disobedience to God, by uh, using our authority when we, all of us, have in some way authority in our lives as well, when we use that properly and in a godly fashion, thinking of the fact that we are servants of Christ at the same time, we bring honor to the one from whom all authority comes. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are willful too often. We do not like to obey authorities. Help us to remember that all authority is from you, and let us cheerfully obey legitimate commands and let those in authority, husbands, fathers, mothers, employees, or employers, rather, and also the civil magistrates and teachers and elders, remember that they are accountable to you for how they lead and govern. And help us all remember that we are accountable to you for how we treat those in authority over us and how we relate to them as we pray in the name of Zion's only King and Head, the Master of all who are in Christ, indeed the rightful Master of the whole world. In Jesus' name, Amen.